after a few intervening weeks, we're back in Revelation, and I'm finishing off our study of different millennial positions today with what is called amillennialism, which is the position that I now hold after having moved away from post-millennialism over the last few years. So I might say we at various points, as in we amillennialists, uh, that might just be a more natural way of speaking for me than trying to maintain sort of third-party neutrality and objectivity all the way through, as I've, as I've of course, done when speaking of uh, premillennialism and, and postmillennialism, which I, I no longer hold to. Now, by way of reminder, the millennium is the thousand years, which is mentioned several times in the book of, uh, or sorry, in the chapter of Revelation 20. And the different millennial positions that we've been studying are different ways that Christians have understood and interpreted this thousand years throughout the history of the church. Since it's been a few weeks, let's review briefly so that I can introduce amillennialism in a way that will be clearly distinguished from the other positions in your mind. So, by way of review, quote, premillennialism is the conviction that the second coming, or parousia, will occur before the millennium, the thousand years depicted in Revelation 20, during which believers from all eras reign with Christ, a golden age of peace and happiness in human history that foreshadows the perfection of the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21 and 22, even if stopping a little short of it, end quote. Post-millennialism, quote, by the way, post-millennialism expects the proclaiming of the spirit-blessed gospel of Jesus Christ to win the vast majority of human beings to salvation in this present age. Increasing gospel success will finally produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of people and of nations. After an extensive era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly, bodily, and in great glory, ending history with the general resurrection and general judgment of all mankind." End quote. So, in premillennialism, the return of Christ happens before or pre a millennium in which Christ reigns on earth, even in and over what is called the common kingdom. During this millennial reign of Christ, premillennialists believe that there's still sin and death and so forth, but the overall situation will be very good. People will thrive and flourish during Christ's millennial reign. There is something of a golden age, to use Craig Blomberg's words. In post-millennialism, the return of Christ happens after or post a millennium in which Christ reigns on earth through his people's influence even in and over what is called the common kingdom. During this millennial reign of Christ, post-millennialists believe that there's still sin and death and so forth. Christ hasn't returned yet and brought things into their eternal state. But, as the premillennialists believe, the post-millennialists also believe that during the millennium, the overall situation will be very good, universally. 
for believers and unbelievers alike as Christ reigns. People will thrive and flourish during Christ's millennial reign through his people in post-millennialism. Again, there is something of a golden age then, but this time it is prior to Christ's return. Christ returns after or post such a period, which is why it is called post-millennialism. All right, now, amillennialism, of course, recognizes that the phrase, the thousand years, is indeed in the Bible. Just like everyone should recognize that the word elect is in the Bible. And therefore, we have to believe in it, and we have to do something with it. I, I've told you before about when someone asked John MacArthur in the question and answer period, do you believe in election? And he said, well, that word is in the Bible, right? So we understand that likewise, this, this phrase, the thousand years, is in the Bible. We have to do something with it. All millennialists do not believe, therefore, that there is no millennium, that there is no thousand years. As the name or the prefix ah or no would seem to imply. Amillennial or amillennialism strictly sort of broken down in terms of its structure would mean no millennialism, right? Since the prefix ah negates whatever comes after it, like atheist is not a theist, right? As Anthony Hukuma says, the term amillennialism is not a happy one. It suggests that amillennialists either do not believe in any millennium or that they simply ignore the first six verses of Revelation 20, which speak of a millennial reign. Neither of these statements is true. Rather, amillennialists interpret the thousand years in Revelation 20 as being symbolic of the whole period between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And though Christ is reigning now and his people with him over his eternal kingdom, which shall never end, this kingdom operates concurrently with the common kingdom until the return of Christ. In other words, there's not going to stop being nations like Barbados and the United States of America and Australia and so on and so forth, though any one of these nations might fall, obviously. There's still going to be these nations, and they are not going to be so radically transformed that we could say that Christ is reigning in sort of a visible, tangible way that brings universal blessing to the common kingdom prior to Christ's return. It is at Christ's return when Christ's kingdom envelops and absorbs the common kingdom. So in amillennialism, here's the distinction. There is no golden age to be expected, either prior to Christ's return, nor is there a golden age after Christ's return, which is distinct from the eternal state. Of course, if we want to call the eternal state a never-ending eternal golden age, amillennialists will not quibble. But we're simply saying that Jesus just returns at the end. The general resurrection and the general judgment take place at that time. And then we are in the eternal state. There is no millennium after Christ's return. Nor should we expect that there's going to be any sort of golden age prior to Christ's return. So here's where the term comes from. 
there is no millennium in the way that the millennium is understood and defined by premillennialists and postmillennialists. That's where the term amillennialism comes from. There is no golden age to be expected as distinct from the eternal state, either before or after Christ's return. There is to be no visible, manifest, transformative reign of Christ in and over the common kingdom, such that society in general is radically changed and blessed and thriving. Not until Christ returns, and as the scripture says, gathers out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. Not until then, which is the separation of the wheat and the weeds, not until then will we experience universally the sort of blessedness that premillennialists and postmillennialists typically ascribe to the millennium. So there is no millennium in that sense, according to amillennialism. Until the return of Christ, the wheat and the weeds grow together, as in keeping with the parable of, in Matthew 13. And this parable of the wheat and the weeds growing together in this present age is a paradigm that you could latch onto if you really want to understand amillennialism and have a simple conception of it in your mind. Think of the parable of the wheat and the weeds growing together, and they will do so until the harvest, which Jesus tells us is at the end of the age. So as Michael Horton states, for all millennialists, things are not getting better and better, or worse and worse. Rather, the whole period between Christ's two advents, that is his first coming and his second coming, is marked paradoxically by miraculous growth of Christ's kingdom through, by his word and spirit, alongside obdurate, the obdurate opposition of the world to the Messiah and his co-heirs. As Anthony Hokema says there, all this implies that regarding world history, amillennialists op adopt a position of sober or realistic optimism. Belief in the present rule of Christ in the presence of God's kingdom and in the movement of history towards his goal is accompanied by a realistic recognition of the presence of sin in this world and the growing development of the kingdom of evil. Amillennial eschatology, eschatology just being the doctrine of last things or end times, amillennial eschatology looks for a culmination of apostasy and tribulation in the final emergence of a personal antichrist before Christ comes again. Amillennialists do not expect to see the perfect society realized during this present age. Yet since we know that the victory of Christ over evil was decisive, and that Christ is now on his throne, the dominant mood of amillennial eschatology is optimism. Christian optimism. End quote. We should note that the amillennial position was first systematized by Augustine. So, for example, when we think about what is so-called Calvinism, we don't say Calvin invented it. We say that Calvin systematized and articulated what was already latent there in the pages of Scripture. So, saying 
someone saying, you know, yes, I'm a Calvinist is not saying I put Calvin above the Bible, but rather it's simply recognizing that Calvin was instrumental in systematizing and articulating those doctrines. Likewise, amillennialists would say that amillennialism was not invented by Augustine, but rather was articulated and systematized by Augustine in a way that really became very influential in the Western Church. It eventually became the dominant position within the Reformed tradition, with Calvin himself holding to amillennial thought, and then Reformed heavyweights like Herman Bavinck, Gerardus Voss, Louis Burkhoff, and several others all following suit. All of whom have, of these guys that I've just mentioned, uh, having written Reformed systematic theologies and thereby earning their stripes as pretty serious and credible theologians. However, as with premillennialism and postmillennialism, so it is the case with amillennialism that listing guys who hold the position doesn't really help us determine who is correct. As you've seen over the last number of weeks, uh, there are some serious heavyweights who have held all of the aforementioned positions. So I mentioned these lists of men holding to each position simply to show that none of these options are illegitimate or without precedent for serious Bible-believing Christians to hold to. And therefore, we should be charitable and respectful with brothers who differ with us on eschatology. There's a strong historical precedent of serious Bible-believing men holding to each position. What we really want to do in attempting to make a determination about who is correct is, of course, to actually look at the Bible. Now, our, uh, we have constraints in a series like this of obviously not being able to look at uh, all sorts of different texts and whatnot. So with amillennialism, what I'm going to try to do, having looked at some specific texts regarding premillennialism and some specific tests, texts regarding postmillennialism, what I'm going to try to do is sort of stay pretty high level here with amillennialism and just show how amillennialists might look at some of those texts a little bit differently and understand things a little bit differently. And I'm going to leave it to you to go do the legwork with some of the principles that we discussed today. Let me briefly overview amillennialism and Revelation 20 and then move on to a section on a key amillennial hermeneutic and then uh, move on from there. So first, amillennialism and Revelation 20. And I would say this, amillennialism in interprets Revelation 20 in a similar way to post-millennialism. We understand the thousand years to be representative of the whole time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, as some post-millennialists would. Some post-millennialists would understand the thousand years to be the thousand years immediately prior to Christ's coming, and literally a thousand years. Others would take the thousand years as being figurative of the whole age. All millennialists universally take the uh, thousand years as being symbolic of this present age between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And we believe that, as Augustine said, the devil is bound throughout the whole period from the first coming of Christ to the end of the world, which will be Christ's second coming. This is a feature of amillennialism, which many post-millennialists would agree with. Again, there might be some who might say that the devil 
is bound at the beginning of a literal thousand year period. But those post-millennialists who take the thousand years as the whole present age would agree with all millennialists on this point. That Satan was bound at the beginning of that period and will remain bound until near the end of this present period that we are in. As I told you when I was preaching on post-millennialism now three weeks ago, in the parable of the strong man in Mark chapter 3, both post-millennialists and amillennialists believe that Satan is the strong man whom Jesus binds and plunders his house. That's the whole force of the parable as we would understand Mark chapter 3. Again, while it might be hard to believe that Satan is bound when we see so much evil all around us, remember, I quoted John MacArthur on that point. Consider it from a zoomed out perspective. The nations were once in near total darkness prior to the coming of Christ. Remember I used the example of a dark map with LEDs embedded in it everywhere that there is landmass, right? If we were to turn on little individual LEDs where there are pockets of believers, prior to the first coming of Christ, the map would be in near total darkness. And there would be an LED or two lit up basically in the Middle East. You have pretty much Israel along with a few Gentile believers such as Job, Rahab, Naaman, etc. But the gospel has made remarkable progress since Christ's ascension. If you were to turn on LEDs where there are believers now, you would see a, a map that is very well lit up. And there are still pockets of darkness and people left to be reached. But there is, in fact, a going from near total darkness at Christ's first ascension to significant light by now. The gospel has reached all over the globe. Revelation 20 says that he, that Satan was thrown into a pit and they were shut and sealed over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. There is a very real sense in which the nations are not deceived presently the way that they once were. This is a paradigm shared between amillennialism and postmillennialism. We understand the binding of Satan as described in Revelation 20 to have occurred at the outset of this present age as a result of Christ's first coming. Now, in the present, the nations are no longer deceived the way that they once were prior to Christ's first coming. And Jesus is presently building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The strong man cannot keep Jesus from plundering his house. So we would understand Revelation 19 to end a cycle within the cyclical view of Revelation that we've been studying this book using. And Revelation 20 therefore begins a new cycle. Satan is bound at the outset of this period of time and Jesus reigns with the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. As Ephesians 2, 6 puts it, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Or 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Toward the end, 
Satan is released for a little while. And as Hokuma says, amillennial eschatology looks for a culmination of apostasy and tribulation in the final emergence of a personal antichrist before Christ comes again. Amillennialists would understand Revelation 20 to teach that there is a general resurrection of the just and the unjust alike at the return of Christ, at which time the general judgment also occurs and each person goes to his eternal destiny. This is the last five verses of Revelation 20. So whether you agree with it or not, that's a sketch of how, or how all millennialists would understand Revelation 20. Let us look now at a key amillennial hermeneutic or principle of biblical interpretation. With premillennialists, amillennialists believe that there are Old Testament prophecies about the land of Canaan and the future of the people of God. Hokuma says, the concept of the new earth is so important for biblical eschatology. Many Christians think of themselves as spending eternity in some ethereal heaven. Well, the Bible plainly teaches that there will be a new earth. When the book of Revelation tells us that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven to the new earth, that God will now have his dwelling with men, and that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the new Jerusalem, it is teaching us in figurative language that in the life to come, heaven and earth will no longer be separated, but will have merged. In the final state, therefore, glorified believers will be both in heaven and on the new earth, since the two shall then be one. Hokuma goes on to say, in light of the biblical teaching about the new earth, many Old Testament prophecies of the land of Canaan and about the future of the people of God fall into place. From the fourth chapter of Hebrews, we learn that Canaan was a type of the Sabbath rest of the people of God in the life to come. From Paul's letter to the Galatians, we learn that all those who are in Christ are included in the seed of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. When we read Genesis 17, 8, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land of thy sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. With this understanding of the New Testament broadening of these concepts, we see in it a promise of the new earth as the everlasting possession of all the people of God and not just the physical descendants of Abraham. And when in the light of this New Testament teaching, we now read Amos 9.15, And I will plant them upon their land which I have given them, saith Jehovah thy God. We do not feel compelled to restrict the meaning of these words to national Israel and to the land of Palestine. We understand them to be a prediction of the eternal dwelling of all God's people, Gentiles as well as Jews, on the new earth of which Canaan was a type. Amillennialists, therefore, feel no need for positing an earthly millennium to provide for the fulfillment of prophecies of this sort. They see such prophecies as pointing to the glorious eternal future which awaits 
all the people of God. End quote. Now some criticize amillennialism with over-spiritualizing fulfillment of prophecies, as in the aforementioned examples. But amillennialists would respond by saying that the hermeneutic, or the paradigm of interpretation, that we would use is just what the New Testament itself actually gives us. And so it is just applying the Bible's own hermeneutic to the fulfillment of prophecy. As Robert Strimple says, it is a necessary feature of effective communication, which we all have experienced and understand, that when we wish for a friend, uh, pardon me, that when we wish to describe to a friend something that he or she has not yet experienced, we do so by appeals to what our friend has already experienced. In order to communicate to God's people still living under the Old Covenant, the prophets, by the Spirit's inspiration, spoke of the blessings God would pour out under the New Covenant in terms of the typological images so familiar to the New Covenant saints. So concepts like a lamb or a sacrifice find a broader referent in the New Testament as we realize that Jesus is the true lamb. Likewise, we come to realize the insignificance of worshiping either in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim and the redundancy of a physical temple when we come to realize that the Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth through Christ Jesus, who said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days, speaking of his own body. We come to realize that Israel is not just those born of Abraham, but believers from among both Jews and Gentiles. And that the land of Canaan, pardon me, or that the land is not just Canaan, but in fact, the whole earth, as we see, for example, in Hebrews 4, which Hukumah alluded to, or when uh, Paul universalizes uh, and talks about in inheriting the earth. Likewise, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is already seated on David's throne. As Peter interprets Psalm 110 to have been fulfilled in Jesus' ascension and present session in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Likewise, and this is a fascinating one, the prophesied rebuilding of the tent of David in Amos 9, 11, and 12 is understood by the Apostle James to be fulfilled in the gathering in of the Gentiles in Acts chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. So the Old Testament gives us prophecies which are fulfilled in surprising ways in the New Testament. But the New Testament itself gives us the correct interpretation of these Old Testament prophecies which are, in fact, not as literal as we might intuitively expect them to be. So the spiritualizing that amillennialism does, we believe, of course, is the spiritualizing that the Scripture itself warrants and points to. Here is the principle that 
we ought to apply in understanding Old Testament prophecies. We ought to give the New Testament priority in teaching us how to interpret Old Testament prophecies rather than insisting that Old Testament prophecies are to be interpreted on their own terms and then disallowing ways that the New Testament claims or insinuates to fulfill them because they're not literal enough in our estimation. When we follow this principle most consistently, I think, we will come to an amillennial understanding of eschatology in spite of the fact that both premillennial and postmillennial opponents will tell us that we're not being literal enough. So for example, with respect to prophecies concerning Israel and the land of Canaan and so on and so forth, and we say, well, this refers to the church and the new earth and so on and so forth, premillennialists might say, well, that's not being literal enough and not letting the Old Testament speak on its own terms. We would say, well, we're spiritualizing in the way that the New Testament spiritualizes the fulfillment of these promises. Likewise, post-millennialists might come with passages about the Messiah ruling in the midst of his enemies and his enemies coming and bringing tribute to him and so on and so forth and saying, well, therefore it has to be before they're all gathered out of his kingdom. And in other words, before his return and that there therefore is going to be some sort of a golden age prior to the return of Christ. And you're spiritualizing that away. But again, all millennialists would say, well, we're, we're letting the New Testament tell us in what manner the rule and reign of Christ takes place and manifests itself rather than insisting that the Old Testament passages can't mean what the New Testament seems to tell us they do in fact mean. Now, premillennialism is distinct enough from both postmillennialism and amillennialism that I don't think you would have any trouble distinguishing amillennialism from premillennialism. But you may have some trouble at this point distinguishing amillennialism from postmillennialism in that we might both take the thousand years to be representative of this present age. We both believe strongly in the uh, victory of Christ Jesus in this, this present age in the sense that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Let me, at this point, tell you how I became an amillennialist, and this might help distinguish the two positions from one another somewhat. I have come to believe that there is, by God's appointment, both the kingdom of Christ and what is often called the common kingdom. So, whether it's Barbados, US, Australia, Kenya, whatever, right? There is the common kingdom of which all people, believers or unbelievers, are citizens of. Let's just call it the common kingdom as opposed to plural common kingdoms. We see, therefore, that there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ and the common kingdom. 
I've come to believe that both operate concurrently in this present age with God's sanction. And that's a key point. In other words, I've come to hold what is called a two kingdoms view of political theology. It was wrestling through all the COVID stuff and all the political stuff. It got me thinking more seriously about political theology. And then as an outworking of the political theology which I adopted, I came to see how that, I believe, in, implies amillennialism as opposed to postmillennialism. God's intention, in my understanding, is not to eradicate the common kingdom. In other words, that it is not legitimate and ought not to exist, and that there really ought only to be a theocracy under Christ. Nor is it my understanding that God's intention is, if I can put it this way, to convert and baptize the common kingdom, such that the U.S. remains the U.S., and Kenya remains Kenya, and China remains China, and so on and so forth. But it is so impacted by the gospel, so profoundly changed and transformed by the gospel that it has become something of a new creation and therefore becomes essentially fun fundamentally different than it was. It's, not, it's my understanding that that is not God's intention to do that with the common kingdom either. Such that nations become subject to Christ in the manner that post-millennialism envisions. Rather, I believe that it is God's plan and purpose for the kingdom of Christ to continue to grow and flourish. That Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Which, it, which I agree with post-millennialists that it is doing presently. Christ's kingdom is growing. But I believe that the common kingdom is a common grace for the abundance of people who are not and who never will be believers. It is an institution given by God for the benefit of all mankind, which is going to persist by God's design in a manner quite distinguishable from Christ's kingdom right up until Christ returns. In fact, it will be the strongest and most unchristian at the time of Christ's return, given that there is a prophesied tribulation just before the end. So it is only after that, at Christ's return, after that final apostasy and tribulation, in my estimation, when we will see the earthly manifestation of Christ's dominion. It's only at the seventh trumpet which I believe signals the return of Christ, that we will see that, quote, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 11, 15. So let me, let me state it like this, as that, that, that was a mouthful what I just gave you. Let me state it like this. Post-millennialism sees something of a seesaw, right, or a, a balance of weights, where the kingdom of Christ grows and the common kingdom shrinks, as it were, in the sense that it becomes less and less ungodly and evil and oppressive and so on and so forth, 
in whatever way that different types of post-millennialists might envision that happening. Christ's kingdom advances, but it's a zero-sum game. And so as Christ's kingdom advances, the common kingdom weakens, and opposition and rebellion towards Christ wanes and becomes less. Amillennialism sees both the kingdom of Christ and the common kingdom existing concurrently and growing together, something like the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13. I believe that amillennialism does better justice to all of scripture on the nature of the common kingdom and its place in redemptive history such that I no longer have the expectation that the nations will be Christianized prior to the return of Christ. This doesn't mean that I no longer believe that Christ builds his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail, but it does mean that I'm no longer looking for something of a golden age prior to the return of Christ. So that, I think, is... If we were to try to boil it down for the level of distinguishing these positions that we're trying to do in this little mini-series, I think that that's sufficient in distinguishing amillennialism from postmillennialism. You can see that they're significantly different, even though there is a fair amount of overlap between postmillennialism and amillennialism, especially when you compare both of those to premillennialism. So. With all of that in mind, let's come now to some theological triage, which we've done with the other positions as well. In the case of amillennialism, it's a bit easier with, than with premillennialism or postmillennialism, given our context as a Reformed Baptist church. To not be amillennial is no barrier to being a serious Christian, nor a brother in Christ. However, there are forms of premillennialism and postmillennialism which would be outside of what we would consider to be within the bounds of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, which serves as the doctrinal standard for our officers. So certain premillennial or postmillennial variations might put one outside the bounds of confessional Reformed Baptist theology and therefore render one ineligible to serve as a pastor or deacon in our church. Though, again, to stress it, certainly all are welcome as members of the church. But to the contrary, amillennialism would actually be the standard predominant view of the confessionally reformed, whether Baptist or not. So there's no concern at all about amillennialism being outside of the bounds of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And therefore, no one would be disqualified from serving as a pastor or deacon in our context simply by virtue of holding amillennial convictions. Now, on the other hand, and I think that this is an important point to bring out as we just try to think through the broader picture. On the other hand, there are some churches in which amillennialism would be buried to holding officership in those churches. For example, if churches are committed to a dispensational and therefore a version of premillennialism, uh, if churches are committed to a dispensational paradigm and therefore a certain brand of premillennialism, they might recognize me as a good brother in Christ, 
and yet find my convictions to be out of step with their doctrinal standards, and therefore find, find me ineligible to serve as a pastor in their context. And that's totally fair and legitimate. It illustrates the nature of the task that all churches have, which is to define their own commitments and their own identity, and to enforce certain, certain doctrinal standards in order to preserve the integrity of their own fellowship and what they are and what they have committed together to be and to remain. Well, at the same time, churches ought to recognize that the boundaries of their own doctrinal standards do not render those outside of those doctrinal standards to be non-Christian or to be worthy of mockery or mistreatment. So we got to let the Methodists be the Methodists. We got to let the Pentecostals be the Pentecostals. We got to let the Reformed be the Reformed, and so on and so forth. And it, surely it stands to reason that Methodist churches should look for pastors with Methodist convictions, and Pentecostal churches should look for Pentecostal pastors, right? This is all that we're saying, really. We have to recognize that each have their beliefs or their standards to preserve and protect. And yet we all have to find a way to put our differences in perspective and triage them and show Christian love and charity one to another, even between denominations. So I ought not to take offense that I couldn't serve as a pastor in a dispensational church. That sounds completely reasonable to me, since I'm not dispensational. But I would hope that those brothers would still love and treat me with respect. And I ought, likewise, to do the same for them, right? Or for our Pentecostal brethren, whatever, whatever the case may be. Even if their convictions might render them ineligible to serve as pastors here in this context. Anyway, this wraps up our little mini-series on the different millennial views. As I've said over the last couple of weeks, I'm neither pre-millennialist nor post-millennialist. But I know that some of you are, and I hope I've done sufficient justice to those positions such that you feel understood and respected. And as I've said the last couple of weeks, I hope we can all see, most importantly, that there's a plausible biblical basis for all of these views, even if we don't necessarily agree with exactly how these brothers have handled this passage or that passage. Secondly, there's a plethora of respectable Christians throughout church history who have held all of these views. Thirdly, all of these views are well within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy, and so we may gladly welcome and fellowship as friends and brothers in Christ, even fellow members of the same church, with brethren who hold different positions on these matters. Well, it is important for us to understand these various views and try to discern what the Bible teaches about the millennium. It is also important for us to do theological triage and not treat this subject, which is called eschatology, with the same urgency and gravity with which we would treat, for example, the atonement. And as I was only half joking with you at the beginning of this series, let us all be hyphenated pan-millennials. So if you are pre-millennial, be a pan-millennial pre-millennialist. And if you're post-millennial, be a pan-millennial post-millennialist. And if you're an amillennial, be a pan-millennial amillennialist. Let us keep the appropriate emphasis on what unites us 
and rather than what distinguishes us from one another. And let us be quick to share the affirm the shared the shared eschatological hope that Jesus is coming back. We all believe that. And all jokes aside, everything indeed will pan out in the end.